Hi everyone and welcome to episode 8 of an Inside View podcast with on the ball team building. Again this week we're recording from my headquarters deep in the hills of Dinga Peninsula in the beautiful county of Kerry. I hope you all had a lovely and enjoyable week and I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with the Kelly sisters and even Grace from Mayo. If this is your first time listening to an Inside View podcast, We'd really appreciate it if you go back to episode one and have a listen. If you could tell your friends, family, whoever you may know as well about the podcast, and if you could rate, review it too, we'd really, really appreciate it. Before we go any further, we want to bring you some news. We are delighted to announce that we're teaming up with Mayo-based GRG Sports, who are coming on as sponsors of an Inside View podcast. GRG Sports are a sports teamwear supplier to GA clubs, soccer clubs and all team sports in Ireland. They were established in 2018 by Mayo GA players Tom Parsons, Jerome Akram and former AFL Brisbane Lions player Keane Hanley. They are a fantastic company who are making big strides in the area of teamwear. We're extremely delighted and excited to be teaming up with them so be sure to keep an eye on our social media platforms and to listen to the podcasts because we'll definitely be running competitions and plenty of prizes to be won. So uh, definitely not to be missed. It's now time to bring on this week's guest and we're delighted to be joined by former Cork City star Danny Murphy. The Cockney Rebel was part of the Rebel Army's 2005 Premier Division title winning side. He was instrumental in the Lee Siders Rise from the Ashes in 2011 be crowned first division champions. He cemented his status among the fans by wearing the jersey with such pride and passion. Before joining Cork City, he spent some time in the youth system at West Ham and joining QPR as a 14-year-old. A number of years later, the stark reality of being professional football became evident to him, going from first-team football with QPR to becoming effectively unemployed playing football on a part-time basis. The move to Cork City was a lifeline for the Londoner. Hi Danny, welcome to an Inside View podcast. How are you surviving lockdown or how did you get through lockdown over in, in the UK? Doing it right now, starting to come out the other end of it. So you know, optimistic, things are moving long, long now and you now we can get to hopefully back to some sort of reality. But yeah, I think the first couple of months were difficult for everyone for you know, not just big change in reality for people isn't it really you know in terms of we're just not used to being stuck indoors for that long and having to not really go outside the house and being told you can't go out is completely different from making that choice of not wanting to go out so I think that you know getting used to that and that was difficult at times but now things seem to be you know on the up and up so hopefully things are starting to ease up now and said we can get back to some sort of reality in terms of football and work. And during those weeks when, when things were quite quite intense, how did you keep up beating sane? Um, you know, obviously when you couldn't go outdoors and couldn't go training and couldn't do any bit of coaching. Yeah, I, for me, I'm you know I'm not the sort of person who likes to sit around indoors, and I don't. I got itchy feet, so if I'm sitting down for too long, I need to be up doing something. So I did find that difficult at times um, being stuck in. But you know, as I say. I think that you you start to look at doing other things. So for me, it was like, you know, looking at things I could possibly do in terms of courses online and, you know, started to read a little bit more. You know, just try to keep myself, like, my brain, like, not from going into, like, 
to mush just to try and keep myself busy and do things that you know kept me you know feel like I was active so kind of worked out a good bit at home um and just tried to do things like that really I think it was I could have easily sat around and done nothing but that's when I think you start to have you know difficulties in terms of you do find things really hard because you are stuck indoors and you're not doing the things that you know you're used to doing and mentally it's very difficult whereas I think if you kind of keep yourself active and keep yourself you know ticking over you start to you forget about the things that are going on because you can take up a lot of your day by doing them things. Um, and do you know, as a retired uh, athlete now, do you, like, do you still do a bit of training yourself? Like, or have you just completely put that to the back burner, you know, just to keep yourself fit? Yeah. Um, well, so I, I, I play a little bit of ball with the boys and five aside and playing a vets team with some of my mates and local friends and stuff here. I mean, I don't play at a, a level that I ever played at before because to be honest with you I, I just don't have the time with coaching to really commit to that I've had a couple of opportunities to possibly go back and play non-league but as I said it's like my, my head's not on that at the moment my head's more focused on you know coaching and developing talent and you know being it's very difficult to play and do that at the same time because I think when you play from my point of view is when I played I took it too serious that something had to you know go take a back seat whereas for me coaching can't be taking a back seat because that's my living and that's what I want to do now and that's where my head's at and that's where my heart's in so that's kind of why I still play and have a bit of fun joining with the kids I started running a little bit anyone who tell you play with me that like, I hated any running that we did at football I was the first one to complain but as I said it just kind of helped me keep going during the tough times that we've all been going through as to when I got that opportunity to go out and run once a day it was go out and get whatever I could done yeah it's important to, to do something just to keep the keep the mind active look I suppose we'll we'll bring it back to the to the early days um you grew up in London uh do you want to give us an overview of what it, what it's like growing up there and how did you start progressing in in the football world yeah, so I grew up in uh, South London, which is a place called Bermondsey, which is right by uh, Millwall Stadium. So that's where I grew up as a kid and, you know, <clears throat> grew up on a council estate. Um, once that was the, you know, best way to grow up in terms of, but from a footballing point of view, for me, like, I was never big. I was one of the smaller kids and I was playing at like six and seven. I was probably playing with kids that are, 12 and 13 so for me I was always playing with older kids so from a footballing point of view it was like we used to have a, a concrete cage on the estate and finish school everyone go the whole estate would be out there playing and yeah, sometimes you got, the, got a few kickings because boys were older than you and you was decent for your age they didn't like it and you had to learn very quickly so for me like helped me develop in terms of as a, a footballer and you know my using my stature in terms of as my height and the way I was built that I had to learn very quickly how to deal with that and how to, you know, not let that affect my game, actually use it as a strength. So for me, things like that were good. And I probably was, I think, nine or 10. Uh, 
was playing with a local side, which were Fisher. They were called Docklands, but known as Fisher Athletic, which was one of the biggest and probably most successful clubs in South London at the time. And you know, I know that's not, it went out of existence. Now it's back in, but you know, it's been in and out of existence over the last 10, 15 years. But I went, I was playing for them. I got a couple of pro clubs approached me and um, I ended up picking West Ham over a couple of clubs, but probably wasn't the best choice being a mere wall fan and, you know, picking West Ham. I just remember that I wasn't allowed to put my training kit on until we got down the road. I had to wait until we got down the road in the car to get changed because you know, it was a massive rivalry and it was just not a good thing. But yeah, I ended up picking West Ham just based on the reputation they had and the coaches that were there at the time and the players that had developed and, and who I knew were there as well that, you know, I had people like, you know, Rio Ferdinand was a couple years older than me, Frank Lampard and, you know, Michael Carrick, Joe Cole, they were like two years above me. Um, and then the year above me, there was, sorry, Joe Cole was a year above me, but then there was like, below me, you had like of Kieran Richardson and Anton Ferdinand and, you know, some amazing players that came through there, you know, but it was a great, it was the coaching really. You had some of the best coaches around. You had a man called Jimmy Nabar who was, you know, Tony Carr, who's very well known still now in the footballing world in terms of the coach. And then we had a Paul Hefner and he was, you know, massive as well for me as a coach. And then people were involved in my development and it was like, I, I had the best coaches as a kid growing up from a technical aspect and from a game understanding. So definitely picked the right club. And then things just kind of progressed from there. I ended up, you know, going to QPR at 14 got offered like a professional contract. I think I was like 13. I got offered a professional contract. So I went over to QPR, ended up signing for them. And yeah, ended up making it into the first team at QPR and then things kind of, you know, started to move on a little bit from there. And then, you know, I suppose, as uh, like you were saying, growing up in, in, in Millwall and then you went to West Ham, was there any difficulty there did the coaches look at you any different because you were from Millwall or, or was it just purely professional? No, yeah, no, purely professional. I think that you get kids from all areas and all walks of life going into these academies nowadays. So as you know, the academy coaches don't see it as that. At the end of the day, they see it as we've got a young kid here who we want to improve and make better. So they, they you know, the footballing aspect of it. I mean, for me, I was a Millwall fan and played at West Ham and, I never hid that. Like anyone who ever asked me, I'd always say I was me a Wolfhound. But I didn't care about that and no one else really cared. So cause you had most kids there were either at Arsenal or Tottenham fans or Chelsea fans. And I don't think there was many West Ham fans there, if I'm honest. But you no, know, it was just kind of the way it was growing up. And was there any players that, that you played with, you might have answered this already, that went on to make it, you know, in the, in the premiership? You mentioned Rio Ferdinand and Joe Cole. Yeah, so they were they were all a little bit older than me, Rio Ferdinand and um, you know Joe Cole was year above me. Um, Kieran Richardson, I played with a little bit, um, uh, um, who ended up playing at Man United and at Sunderland, and uh, he was he was a good player as a kid. And he was a year below me, but he came up and played with a year above a couple of times. And then I think Anton played one or two games, but yeah, we had you know I didn't obviously. We was all young at West Ham. If I'd have stayed there, you'd have probably played more games with some of them people. But, you know, the likes of the Coles and people like that, I'd have probably had that opportunity to play more of them. 
but I got to see them at times and got to see them train and play and the things they did at the younger ages. You can see why they made it to the level they made it at. And you, you, you mentioned as well that you, you moved to QPR. Why did you jump ship to QPR or was that just an opportunity with a professional contract? I think... Um, I think back and look at it now at the time, I convinced myself that it was because I thought I had more opportunity to play in the first team, um, which ended up happening. So maybe that was right. But I think if I'm realistic about it, I think about it now, my parents didn't really have a whole lot as a kid. And to know that I was going to have that financial support at the age of 13, knowing that come 17, I was going to be a professional footballer. I think that was the, probably the main reason for why I did it. And I can pretend to say, oh, yeah, it was because I thought I was going to play in the first team. But if I'm realistic, no, it was a financial thing because I thought, yeah, I can make it in the first team there. I've got a pro contract, so that's me sorted. I can financially help my parents. I can help do this. I can do that. But, yeah, I don't think that, you know, if I'm, I'd be lying if I said, looking back on my career now, that I made a decision for basically real footballing reasons. I probably made it more for a financial reason, uh, even though I was only a kid. At the time, I suppose, look, you had to, you, had, you took those things in, into consideration, and but uh, look, you, I suppose when you got first team experience, so it was it was probably a good move too. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I had some good coaches at QPR as well in the youth team. I had Gary Waddock, who obviously was an Ireland international. Um, I had Warren Neal, who was a uh, bit at QPR for years and was a very experienced coach and then you know moving into the first team I, I was lucky enough to play under Ian Holloway and you know I learned a lot there but with his assistant manager was uh, Kenny Jackett and before Kenny come in we had Jerry Francis there so I was lucky enough to play under some decent coaches who, who played at quite a high level like Tim Breaker you know and people like that and you know they were people who kind of molded me and helped me with certain things I, I wouldn't say Holloway done a whole lot for me as a coach I'd say more the likes of Tim Braycar and, you know, Gary Waddox, Warren Neal and um, Kenny Jackett was someone who, you know, kept me behind at training and wanted to work on things with me and done extra training with me and stuff like that. And like they're little things that I remember now that at the time I took for granted and I, and I should have spent more time with them people and, uh, you know, picked more ideas out of their head and been more, you know, asked more questions and, things like that but I kind of didn't you know I was like I wasn't I wish I'd have asked more questions and got more picked their heads with more more things and after QPR then um to move to Swindon came about what age was it were you when that happened I would have been 20 nearly 21 so Swindon's QPR had a man who was his name was Mark, Mark Joblin, maybe? No, it wasn't Mark Joblin. I can't think. Mark Devlin was his name. And he was the director of football at QPR. So he approached me and rang me and was like, look, I know you're coming to the end of your year. You like your contract. We'd like to have you at Swindon. So I went to Swindon, agreed a contract, sat there, ready to sign it. Club got put, had an transfer embargo put on them. So I couldn't sign, but I was still getting paid and still there. But it just carried on for too long. And then, you know, it was a case of that I'd 
been doing that for too long, wasn't earn, I was earning money, but I couldn't play. So we made a decision that they ended up standing transfer embargo lasted nearly a whole season. So kind of lucky I did leave. And I went to Wickham. Money wasn't great really offered there and I couldn't really afford to go and sign for the money they'd offered. So I ended up like working and playing at Margate in the conference. So I was playing at Margate, kind of a, a bit of disillusion with the way football had gone. And, you know, I'd gone from playing in the first team and being quite successful, then all of a sudden trying to find a club and didn't really have the right help and the right people around me to guide me and make the right decisions. And I kind of probably made bad decisions and bad choices and ended up at Margate and then ended up magically something coming off and ended up over in Ireland at Colk. And we say before before we go into the, the move to Ireland, that you must have been at a very low place, we say, you know, after being doing so well at QPR and and another opportunity at, at Swindon to basically been completely out of professional football. How how are yeah. you at the time then? See, see, see. When I look back at it now, I think that back then it was like, I'll get on with it. You know, get on with it. It wasn't a big issue. People didn't really talk about. It. I didn't know anything about it. But if I look back now, I'd say, yeah, mentally, did I find things difficult? Yeah, of course I did. From a financial aspect. I found things very difficult because you go from earning good money to all of a sudden, I've got nothing. And then that that vision that you had for yourself as a person as to where you wanted to be and what you wanted to achieve, it was gone. So like, how do I get back up there? And when you're a kid and you're like 15 to 18, that drive to be there is easy. When you've been there and you get a kick in the, in the backside and you end up back down again, it's very difficult to get yourself back up to that level. And I did find that hard and I did find it difficult. I was going around places and I just kind of wasn't enjoying playing. Like, because I wasn't happy with where I was at as a person and as a footballer. And I just found things difficult because people were telling me I could be there and where I should be. But then I was going places and not getting what I wanted or not getting what people were telling me I should be getting. And I couldn't grasp the concept of, I'd go into like, I remember going to Chesterfield and I'd done really well. We played Leeds in a friendly, done really well. Manager was like to me after, oh, I really want to sign you, but I can't afford it. And I'm like, why did you bring me up? And why did you bring me here all the way up to Chesterfield, which like, I was up near Manchester, which is like a four hour drive. I drove up that day and I said, like, oh, we'll look after you for expenses and petrol money and food. And I thought, and, and, and a lot of clubs do that to people. And this is what people don't see. Like, I see all these kids that want to be footballers, but a lot of clubs use them. So I would get them in, have a look at them for three, four weeks, get some numbers, see what we think. But like, really, do you really like, if you're really honest, are you really getting that kid in because you really think you're going to be able to sign him? Or is it just a case of, oh, let's get him in just because I know the age and I'm doing him a favour. And that's where things for me was like, I kind of was getting a bit peed off with things because I was like, a lot of it was people just take me on trial because my agent's being a pest or do they actually want, want me? I think that, and I just kind of was like, when I started planning the conference, was trying to get work, work during the day, planning the conference, working with my mate, I had a little signage company, I'd done some scaffolding and 
things like that. And I was just like, no, I just play in the conference in Margate, pick up an extra couple of quid and make some money. And I was ready to kind of drop out of football in a way. I was just like trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I was thinking, do I become a football agent? You know, I was looking at all them different options, but I didn't really have no pathway and I didn't know what I wanted to do. All I knew was to play football. And I finished school with no qualifications. So I didn't know what else I wanted to do. So for me, it was like really basically I just, I didn't know what to do. I, I just didn't have a, I can't say I was depressed. I can't say I was down. I just don't think I had any direction in like of what, of where I wanted to go in life. And I was finding that hard because always my week was always Saturday, get Saturday, play the game, work the next week towards the next Saturday, play the game, work next week to the next Saturday. And then when that's gone, that structure of training and playing and knowing where I'm going to be every day, I just found all that really difficult. And what age were you when, when, when that happened? Were you in the early 20s or then? I was 20, probably 21, maybe, yeah, but just turned 21. And so I was still young. What, what advice, looking back now, would you give to, to kids, you know, and uh, to... Or, you know, teenagers who might be in our, you know, early 20s, guys any age, or girls any age, who might be in some similar position, you know, in, in whatever sport it may be? I would say, uh, in terms of playing and training, give everything you've got, right? Give everything you've got every day, work hard, be the best you can be, ask questions, get more knowledge, but then I'd say, Outside of football, get a degree. Go and find something else to do. I don't, it's very minimal amount of people that make enough money out of football that can set them up for the rest of their life. But go and, go and what do you call it, you know, do a degree, think of other things, do more than one degree. You might play for 15 years, go and do four, three degrees in that time. Go and, you know, Look into opening like your own little businesses up. Look into coaching. Like, get do something else that's outside of football that can set you up when football's gone. Because when it's gone, it's gone. Like, you know, like for me, I got to 30, 34, 35 and struggled with life when football was gone. I didn't know what to do. I was gonna. I didn't have a pathway of what I wanted to do in my life. Because all I knew was football. And I'll touch on that um, once we, we discussed the move to Ireland. We say, mm. so how did the Ireland, how did the move to Ireland come about? I was playing at Margate in a conference and my dad emailed Pat Dolan. But we'd paid Pat Dolan's brother was at Exeter at the time. And that week, or the week before, I'd played Exeter and I played quite well. And uh, Pat Dolan's dad, brother knew who I was and had messaged Pat and it just coincidence that my dad had emailed him at the same time as his brother had messaged him. So it just all seemed to fall into place. It, it, it all worked out. So you, you joined Cork in 2004 and kind of really hit the ground running there. Yeah. Um, I turned up, so I played a game for Margate on a Saturday, turned up in Ireland on a Saturday night, flew out straight away after the game. Played against Kilkenny on the Sunday. 
knew it ended up knowing a couple of lads like Liam Carney as the Brendan Sweeney was there knew a couple of lads through the Ireland set because I'd played Ireland under ages with some of the boys and uh, played the game against Kilkenny and Pat Dolan was like look I want you to stay the season starts in a week's time can you stay like and I was like yeah I'll sign I'm staying so I literally after the game committed and signed and I just didn't go back so I literally only had like a weekend set of clothes with me and you, you, you kind of hit the ground running. You just bought whatever other clothes you needed there. You, you didn't worry too much about anything else. Uh, Liam Carney tried to lend me a pair of jeans and a um, pair of shoes, but the je- jeans were flares. And I was like, oh, I'm not wearing them. And he had like a cream <laughs> pair of shoes. I'll never forget him asking me to put them on. I still laugh about this now. I'm like, I'm not going out in them. No chance. And, uh, and yeah, so I ended up staying. It was mad. And, um, just, just one, one thing you said there that you played underage for Ireland. Um, you played, was it under 16, 17s? Yeah, 16, 17s and 18s. I was never lucky enough to get an under 21s cap, but I believe I was quite close. And you know, I had Brian Kerr as manager and Brian was quality. Like, I loved every minute of playing for him. On that point, you, you, you've come across a lot of coaches throughout your career. Um, but before before we get to that, you say right. You you came to Cork, um, yeah. League of Ireland champions two thousand five. How did you feel then? How was that year? Do you know what? We, the year before, we were close, but we just quite quite ready. So like Pat Dolan was the manager then, and Pat Pat had such structure in the team of how we played a certain way just put small details into what we did and then Damien Richardson come in and Damien was like took the gloves off and it was like right I know you can all play you know you know and he I remember him saying when the first time I met him he was like look I don't want you to stand back at left back you go and get up and down as a pullback he went I don't think you've been playing as well as you can because I think you've been reluctant to do the things you can do and literally for me like someone to say that to me it was like wow I really believed in me and I think that's what it was. He come in and done that. And after like pre-season, you knew whoever we played against, we was going to beat us. It didn't matter how bad we played. We could win a game 1-0 and we could play terrible. Like literally, we'd had like, win a game. And you knew four or five games into the season, you could just sense, oh, we're going to win the league here. And I remember people were saying it to me and I was saying, there was a lady called Sonia who used to be involved with Court City. And I used to say it all the time, we'll win the league. I'll tell you now, we'll win the league this year. She was like to me, it's too early. I was like, just stop saying it. And I'm like, I'm telling you now, we'll win the league. And she was like, no, no, no. She was like one of the board members at the club. And I'll never forget, like, end of that season was last game of the season, Derry at home. And uh, I was in Barry's and we, a couple of us used to go and get like a pre-match meal together. So we was in Barry's, which was a pub, which probably wasn't ideal for a pre-match. But we used to go in there and have something to eat. And um, the barman in there, Tom, come up to me and was like, was all sitting there, the boys, and he was like, how do you feel tonight, boy? And I was like, I oh, will win. And the boys all looked at me and I was like, like, I was like, we'll beat them, we'll beat Derry, and there's no way we're going to lose at home. And we're like, we're so confident, but we all was. Like, I remember all that week building up to it, where all we said to each other was, in the papers, don't talk about going and winning it, just say it's going to be a hard game. But we was all con- like, knew that we were going to win it. So then you, you, you came to Ireland and you, you won the League of Ireland, which we already discussed, you know, in 2005. Um, but you were, you kind of touched on something there that the, 
there seemed to be a good team culture, strong team dynamics in, in that Cork City team in 2005. Yeah, I think that we had a group of players there, which I've never experienced at any other club I've ever been, or ever team I've ever played with. We were just, we are very highly competitive in training with each other. We were all friends, but we all knew when the messing had to stop. So, like, it wasn't a case where it went too far. Listen, don't, don't get don't me wrong, there was times when it did go too far, but you was all reined in quite quickly because someone else would be like, hey, that's enough. Like, we had a really good balance of, like, young players, old, middle players, the players of a, you know, kind of coming to the end of their careers and players who had been in and around the game a little bit of time. But it was just, like, a really, like, good atmosphere. Training was always a laugh, always funny. I turn like I used to look forward to going to training every morning because you just the banter was quality. It was like the stupid things we did to each other was like, like we just yeah we just like what we, the things you did to each other you did in any other working place you'd get sad. Like, whereas we'd just laugh it off and have a laugh about it. But yeah, it was really amazing experience. Yeah, um, and then. You know, I suppose you know when you think of Cork City, um, you think of the, the European European nights they had in at Turner's Cross. Mm-hmm. Do you want to you know give us um, a sense of what that was like, especially for the the younger listeners? Yeah, I think it was something that is very hard to ex- not explain, but like put into words what it was actually like to see and to feel. Um, for me, it was like the European nights were amazing. Like, the buzz for that week coming up to the game, that challenge of playing against the unknown of players you don't play every week, don't really know a whole lot about them, but some of them have played at like amazing clubs at a really high level. And you was always the underdog. No one ever thought you'd win. And like you always, I think for us as a team, a cult, that team at that time, was we were quite a good footballing team, but we could do the dirty side of the game also. And we'd done both of them quite well. Whereas when we played in Europe, teams didn't expect us to play. So when they started to give us time and space and was able to play, and they was like, oh shit, these boys are quite good. You know, they can play a bit. But we also had that side where we could go a little bit longer because we had the likes of Roe Donovan and Kevin Doyle, like rapid. You know, Shane Longs and people like that who were quick. And you also had that, technically gifted player like a Neil Fenn who you could pass it into him as hard as you want it'd stop the ball dead and then he'd you know create something and teams just don't think really understood us and we kind of had a group of lads where we really had that never say die attitude but never really said it and it was just expected of you the culture I suppose that was that was there and that you know it, it, stayed, it stayed with you after you know, you know, to win that that League of Ireland title, um, I think it was the first League of Ireland title in a couple of years, was it? In two thousand and five, twelve years since we'd won it, yeah. So we won it, and it was like twelve years before that. So yeah, it was uh, a lot of expectation, a lot of people wanting it. But do you know what? Like, you come to realise as a player in Colk that that pressure is always on you. People expect you to win everything. You know, whether you play hurling. Gaelic football, whether you're, uh, and the Gaelic footballers obviously are not 
been as successful as they probably people want them to be. But then you look at the hurlers and people just expect, well, you should be in a you should be in the final every year. All right. So that's the expectation of people in court. And you can either crumble under that or you can say, well, do you know what? I want that as well. Instead of taking that pressure as and I think that's why we were quite good as a team at court because you know, that was our expectation. Our expectation was more than what the fans wanted. We wanted to batter teams on the pitch and bully them and win games. We didn't just want to win. We wanted to do it in style and look good doing it. And we wanted to enjoy the other side of it off the pitch, which we did. So it was like we was like very different in that way. And I think that we wanted it. We really wanted it like as a team. And it was definitely a special bunch there. Uh, you, you mentioned Shane Long and, and Kevin Doyle. Obviously, they went, they went over to England probably not too long after that, was it? Well, Kevin left. There was, like I think, like eight or nine games left and Kevin Doyle left with Shane Long. Shane, I think, maybe played one game. Shane was only a young kid at the time and he was very, very raw. Like, very raw, you know, but he was he had exceptional pace and he could he could jump so high and it was ridiculous but he was a good player you could see for the two of them Kevin probably did the best in terms of ability wise Shane went at the right time for him because it it improved him as a player technically on and off the ball and he had the athleticism to be able to step up and do it so for him, in terms of that way, it was the right time for him. One, uh, one nickname that you got in, in Cork was the, the Cockney Rebel. You want to <laughs> give, give us an overview of how that came about? Yeah, I think, do you know, I think, when it, I think it's sort of second game into the seat. My first, my first game played WC, second game, home game was against Waterford. And had Alan Reynolds, who was well known for being a bit physical, wanted to get, kick people about. And I think like the first tackle, I just went into the tackle with him and the two of us kind of, you know, both jumped up and squared up to each other. And I just said to him, I'm not backing down for you like the rest of the people will. And we just had a mat- battle all the way through the game. And like after that, it was like, because being from London, people called me a Cockney. And then obviously with Cork being the Rebel Army, it was you know, Cockney Rebel and it just came out of nowhere and people kept calling me and it was like, it's nice, it was, you know, to have, you know, that sort of affiliation with a club that people look up to in that way was, you know, something for me was like very touching, you know, very, very touching. Especially, I suppose, after the previous couple of years, you went through, you know, kind of thinking that, look, you might never again play, play football. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I had that feeling of, you know, the feeling of, I think from a footballing point of view, from a, being a footballer, being wanted is the best feeling in the world. Uh, but from a coach, from fans, from your teammates, the de- when, you, when you're there and you don't feel wanted, very lonely. And like to be in a place where everyone wanted me there, like the fans wanted me there, manager liked me, the player, I got on with all the players. And it was just, life was easy. Like I didn't have no worries, didn't have to worry about anything. I went to train every day, trained, played a game. Whether I played good or bad, people seemed to accept me as, you know, that's, you know, that's Danny, that's the way he plays. And that was it. No one, no one called me Danny anyway. Everyone was called me Murph. So that was like, that was, 
for me, yeah, that feeling of, and it, I suppose, like a feeling of love, and it? it's like people, people love you in terms of they look up to you, and like kids adore you. It's like there's no better feeling from from a footballing point of view of like coming off a pitch after a game and people want to like, oh, well done, like, well, great, and all stuff like that. I mean, that's something that I don't think people will ever take away from me in terms of you know that side of the game. So it's yes. Yeah, it's just a nice feeling. And what what age were you when you know when you joined Car uh, when you won the League of Ireland with Car in two thousand and five? Even early, probably early twenties. Yeah, I was twenty three, maybe. Just turned twenty three. Twenty yeah, twenty three. God, that's making me think now. I feel old now. I think. That <laughs> um, yeah, I was like yeah. twenty three, twenty four. And. The the move then um to to Motherwell came probably not long after was it probably two thousand six I think yeah it was the season so we won the league season after that I think a lot of the players were very disappointed because we didn't kick on as a club in terms of probably needed investment um I think if we did and we kept all our players. We would have dominated the league for the next five, six years. Um, I think that then it became a that next year we kind of had an average year in the season. I come to the end of that season, that's where Motherwell come in and offered me a contract, and I was like, you know, I'm going to a club that are gonna, you know, are willing to pay me a, a substantial amount of money, but I'm getting an opportunity to play in the Scottish Premier League. Um, for me, the biggest pull for that was going to play against the likes of Celtic and Rangers. Wasn't a point of going to Motherwell. Um, but, yeah, I think that if Cook would have had that kind of investment then when we won the league and we'd have kept all our players and pushed on that next year. Whereas next year was kind of really a nothing year. We didn't really do that well in anything. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it was just a frustrating year because we didn't really add to the team and improve it a whole lot. And I think if we'd have done that, we'd have like really kicked on. So it was probably the, the time was right and the opportunity came, you know, it was probably too good to not, not, not to take. Yeah, it was, it was too good an opportunity not to take. And, you know, I mean, I remember going in and see Damian Richardson and I'm like, Tim, look, you know, my wife offered me a contract. I'm going to sign a pre-contract with him. Um, I won't be able to play for until January, but I stand to the end of the season. I don't want to leave yet. He was like, I'm trying to get people to come in and help take over the club and you know, make us a better club. And you're going to like, proper, like, absolutely went into me. And I'm just sat, sat there and I'm like going, oh my God, like, I didn't know what to say. And I was just like, yeah, but I want to go and play against Selwick. <laughs> and, <that's> like, <laughs> and I remember like saying it, just thinking, I feel like a little baby, like I'd been spoken to for like as a child, and I was like, "Yeah, but I want to go and play against Celtic." And it was like, "Yeah, he, you know." After that, we kind of, we still we got on, and I think he understood what my, I felt that at the time I felt I was going onto something better, um, and I thought it was a better opportunity for me to progress my career. Um, did it do that? Not really. Um, but it gave me good opportunities to play against the likes of Celtic and the Hibs and the Hearts and 
you know, playing at some of them historic stadiums and the Rangers and, you know, teams like that. And that's something that no one can ever take away from me that I had the opportunity to do them things. So for me, I managed to get that opportunity of doing that, playing at Celtic Park was something special, right? I suppose, that, you know, growing up, you know, um, in, I suppose, in kind of somewhat an, an Irish background household, I said that was kind of a dream come true, was it, to get that opportunity to play against Celtic like? Yeah, like as a kid, like we either had, as kids, we always got a meal kit every year, got a meal kit. And then we'd always get a Celtic one or we'd get an Irish, the rugby shirt. Like every year, like we'd get them. And I always had a Celtic shirt. And I even remember the kit I had, I had the one with a number on the back of the shorts when they used to do that. I used to love it. But we always had them kits of kids and going there and playing there. And, I, and I'll never forget, like, like just walking out onto that pitch and being like, oh, like before the game, looking around, no one's in the stadium. You're like, going, man, this is massive. Like, this is, I can't believe I'm playing here. So, like, yeah, it was something that always wanted to do as a kid and something that, as I say, no one can ever take away from me. And what was it like? You know, walking out there against, we say Rangers or even or even Celtic. Um, you know, I suppose more so Celtic with with your background. Um, mm. It must have been surreal. You know, the singing, um, sea of green and white. Oh, it's, you know when people say that you see it, it's a sea of green and white. I don't think they really understand what they're saying, because like you're in the tunnel and the tunnel's quite long. And as you're walking down the tunnel, there's like all the pictures of players and things they've won. As you're walking down, like they've printed on the wall. And all of a sudden, it just gets louder and it gets louder and then it gets louder. And then you walk out and you're on the pitch and it's like, they've got like 35,000 players. All you can see is green and white. But you can't see anything else. And it's just like, the away fans are up high in the corner, out of the way. And it's like, during the game, I remember like at times during the game and I'm just looking around thinking, I'm playing at Celtic Park here. Oh, wow. Uh, no, and it, yeah, it's, it's so hard to explain like, in terms of the feeling you have when you walk out and nervous of what you was going out onto the pitch and stuff like that. I mean, yeah, it was something that I will never, ever forget, ever. No, I never will forget. And that uh, that season, you went over to to Motherwell. Um, I suppose it brought about another opportunity. Then um, you 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 went to Dunfermline Athletic for a while, yeah. and you 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 were under at the time. Stephen Kinney, the current Irish manager, was in charge of them. Yeah, so I was at Motherwell. I wasn't really playing. Um, new manager come in didn't rate me as a player so I wasn't playing so I rang Stephen Kenny up said that if I can get him to take me, you take me on loan will you take me on loan he was like yeah no problem I said but I can't afford to pay you what they're going to expect and I, so I went into the office and said look they'll let me go on loan you know I can get some games and prove I'm good enough blah blah whatever and he's like no you're not going so I left it a week went back into him I was like I'm not paying and you're paying me a full wage let me go there on loan let me at least play. Like I want. I need to play. I'm 25. I was probably what? So I was 25. I was like, you need. Like I need to play. So he let me go on loan. Went down there with Stephen. We'd done quite well. We were struggling at the bottom of the team. I think the hardest thing for Stephen was 
he had some players there who were bad professionals and thought they were so good. They wasn't. And their attitudes towards training and towards games, they were killing him. And it was affecting him as a person because I don't think they respected what he had done in Ireland. But they, because they'd had decent careers themselves, they thought they were better than that. And they were just bad. They wasn't very good people for me. Like, I'm like, and I got on well, great with Steve. And I actually texted him when he got the manager's job. And I just said, oh, congratulations. And delight for you. I wish you all the best. And uh, he texts back, uh, yeah, thank you very much. And I said, look, really appreciate the time you got me back. Took me on loan, and no, I'll never forget that. And he said, "Don't worry, I'll never forget the headache you gave me driving back to uh, going back to Derry after you beating us one 0 in the last game of the season." So like, we had a little bit of back bad that. But like, Stephen's a good person, like, and do you know what? Like, as a co- as a player, you don't meet a lot of managers who actually care about you as a person, and he does. Like, he cares about you more of a person than he does what you do on the pitch. Like, he'd do anything for someone who plays for him. That seems to be the general trend, yeah. He seems to be, you know, get, get, he seems to get on very well with, with players. Um, that's what I've been hearing anyway. But uh, I I suppose you, you kind of answered the question already. Do you think you'll do well with Ireland or how well do you think? I know it's hard to say, but um, do you think he, he could bring that, that Irish team on to, to bigger things? Hopefully. I hope he does. I really do hope he does. I think the biggest thing is, is for me as a like as a team, do we have the quality? All right. So stop like blaming managers for what we're not able to do. Like, what are we not doing at the younger age groups, and what are we not doing in terms of as as an infrastructure to build to have better quality players coming through? Um, you know, and that, that for me is the biggest question is like, why have we not got the quality? I mean, because you go back to some of the players from years ago, I mean, the quality was there. It just doesn't seem to be there at the moment. And that goes back to, are we doing the right things at the schoolboy level, at grassroots level, at youth level? You know, what, you know, what are we putting the right steps in place as a nation and as like clubs within that, in, in Ireland to produce the best young talent, you know? Where is all the young talent gone? Where where are they playing? Now, that that for me is the the bigger question because Stephen can only do a job with the players he has, and if the quality isn't there, then he's got to do the best he can with him. And then what's the expectations of people based on the quality of the players? Like to make these national tournament, sorry, international tournaments, you've got to have quality players. Because you know, they're just going to go there and get there and end up being the whipping boys for all the other teams. And it's like, you know, we need to start generating quality players coming through. I mean, two, three players possibly that are playing week in, week out. Whereas if you go back eight, nine years ago, you probably had 16 Irish players playing every week. Yeah, true. true. So you're not even half, you're less than half. So, you know, add we, I think the bigger picture is, is putting the right structures in place to get better players or develop better players. Not get better players, but start developing better young talent. And I, so I, would you agree that 
I suppose with the current crop, um, and especially what what Stephen did with the twenty one side, he's probably the the most qualified or the person in the best position to to take the helm at the moment. I th- I think so. I think that the new role he's kind of taking was overseeing the development of every, everything really, and I think that that is the best person for that. And I think that he will, you know, if he's allowed and if. You know, he's not under any reins and he can do it his way. I think that there'll be huge amounts of success in the future. But I, I hope that he's able to do it his way. You know, yeah. And it's like, you know, I think that's the biggest thing for me. I think what he done at Dundalk and what he achieved. And he had some great players at the start. But he'll, get, he'll do the right things and get pit teams playing the right way. Once he's low to, that's, that's the thing. Um, and you, yeah, I'm not saying that he's not going to be, but I hope that he's given a chance and given the time. Um, and then in 2008, you look, you came back to, to Cork City. Um, things kind of got going there again, did they? Yeah, I mean, I was up, I went back, my loan finished at Dunfermline, was trying to extend my loan. Motherwell said I was going to get back in the team, went back and I played, I was meant to play, was meant to play Celtic. The pitch got waterlogged and game was called off and game didn't end up being on. So that next week, the week after, I didn't wasn't even in the squad for the team and I was like, this is a waste of time again. And we I went into the office, just said, Look, I've been approached by Cork to go back. I have a year left on my contract. You don't want to play me, I'm not gonna play. Allow me to move on. So I ended up tearing up my contract and going back to Cork. And then um, I think they, they got into some more financial difficulty then, but you, which you know results in you joining uh, Shamrock Rovers, and that's where you got your second league league award in title. What was that like at the time? It was difficult. I just had a son, so my little boy Shay had just been born. So he'd just been born, and we. Financially, I was okay in decent enough position, but when you have a child and you've got to spend a lot of money on getting bits and pieces and you're not getting paid, like, I didn't get paid for like 19 weeks. I was still training, still playing. Now, I remember playing a game on Friday night, everyone had been paid and I hadn't. And I didn't go to Paul Doolan, the manager, before the game, all right, because I was pissed off because I just felt it was the wrong thing to do. And I played the game and he'd come up to me after and he'd found out because one of the boys had told him that I was annoyed that I hadn't been paid. And I felt I was the only one. And uh, he went, oh, well, Tom told me that you've agreed a deal with him. I said, no, I never agreed any deal with him. He said to me he might need to talk to me about taking a pay cut. And I told him to put something to me in writing and he just didn't pay me. And it just kind of spiralled from there. And then I became very difficult with him in terms of I didn't trust him. I thought he was lying. I questioned everything he did. Constantly asking him questions about where the money was, what he was doing with the money, why we didn't have any money. Um, and I started to hear things about, you know, he'd got rid of the people, the security people who were taking the money after the games and he was taking it home himself. And I was like, just think, hold on a second, like we're, we're getting three, four thousand people, where's that money all going? Like you can't be leaving the stadium with that money. 
tonight. There was a lot of things for me that I really questioned and I was probably the biggest pain in the ass ever because I didn't trust him. And I think that then he put the club in such a bad situation that there was no way out of it. And Roddy Collins come in, it was an absolute joke because he was just a clown. Like the things he said and the biggest thing for me was with Roddy, we had never we hadn't been paid for 19 weeks, but he had. And I'm like, hold on a second, how have you been paid? You've just come in the door. So like things like that kind of did rub me up the wrong way. And then I stayed and I trained, I'd done every day. And then Shamrock Rovers kind of gave me an ultimate and was like, look, either you come this week and stay and sign for us, or the contract's not there anymore. So I, I knew Cork, I've, I was hoping, and I was staying at Cork, because I was hoping I'd get out of their financial difficulty, but then I, I knew deep down it wasn't going to. So literally, I was offered a certain amount by Shamrock Rovers at the start, and obviously when I turned down the deal, because I said I wanted to stay, they came back to me again, but the money that they wanted to offer me, they offered me the first time, wasn't as much, because they'd end up signing other players. So I'd end up taking less money, but just to get a contract, just because I had a baby, and I had to, Think about that. Um, it was difficult because we had the child. I was driving up and down to Dublin. I lived in Colt. So I was driving up and down. That was back when, when the roads weren't as good as they are now. So I was doing like three and a half hour round trips there and back in a day and training, playing games. And I don't think they got the best out of me as a player because of everything that I had going on off the pitch. And I don't think I was... 100% committed to being at the club. I, I think I'd done my best when I was there. But if I look back now on my career, I think that I had too much going on that I wasn't able to give them my best. Then you, the opportunity to join Cork again came about, I suppose, look, you, you, you're saying that you, you had family based there at the time and you'd your life was there, you're commuting up and down. Um, was there a lot of uncertainty in your mind at the time, you know, going back to them after what had happened? No. I'd won the league at Rovers. Um, I'd been to watch quite a few Corks games during the year whenever I could. Um, I met with Tommy Dunn. I thought the team was close enough to getting up. Just needed like, a couple more players. I met with Tommy. Tommy was like, look, if you come back, I'll be able to get these players over the line because they'll see that we've got the commitment from yourself. And, and I really believed that we could get up that year. And for me personally, I wanted to be involved with that. I wanted to be one of them players who got them back up from where they was. And I think that was it for me, really, is the point of that. I came back because it's what I wanted to do. Was it a good move for me at the time? Career-wise, no, probably not. And everyone questioned that. A lot of people thought I was mad going back to Colt. But I really believed that we could get up. And I was like, they just drove me on to prove people wrong again. It was like, oh, I'm going to show you. And I said all the time, all the time we're going to get up. And and the same person, Sonia, I say it to her all the time, we'll go up this year. And she was like to me, I remember after the game, she went, you're the only person who never stopped. I said, we'll beat Shells. Last game of the season, we'll go straight up as champions. And she was like, no, 
we can't, we only need a draw and all this. And I was like, no, we'll go there, we'll beat them. And I was like, it was weird. Like them two times that I said it, I just believed it so much that I couldn't see any other way. And it was so strange. Like, because I just didn't see it happening any other way. And you spent three more years there. Um, actually, before, before we went to that point, you when you were with Shamrock Rovers, um, I know it was a difficult time for you off the pitch, but, you know, you, you're under um, Michael O'Neill, you know, who went on to be manager mm. of Northern Ireland and current manager of Stoke. Um, what was your experience with him? Michael was very good man manager. I knew how to get the best out of players. Um, didn't do a whole lot of coaching. He had a good coaching staff, but like, you could go to him with any any issues you had. Like, he was honest. Like he, if he didn't rate you and he wasn't going to play, he'd tell you why. Wouldn't beat around the bush and lie, but lie to your face. He'd just say, "Look, you wasn't good enough. You're not, why you're not playing? You didn't play well." I remember we played Dundalk and uh, we played them at their place. I think it was in the cup and I was useless. Like, I played so bad on the Astro and I hated playing on the Astro. And I'll never forget after the game, he went absolutely ballistic at me and he was like, and you, you can't even run on the Astro. I don't know what you even think about doing turning up to play on it. We played Dundalk there about a month later and I was on the bench. <laughs> it was like, he... Uh, I had a good relationship with Michael and you know he understood that you know court for me was home and I kind of felt I, I was making the right decision and you know we made an agreement and I was able to go home. Uh, that, was, that was fair enough, that was fair enough. And uh, you, it's actually interesting there you said home, uh, Cork City, so Cork City was always, always home to you, home for you. Yeah, because I still sat now. Like, for me like, Spent the best years of my life at Cork, in Cork, and I think it'll always be home. You know, like obviously London is where I was brought up as a young kid, but like where I developed as a person, as a man, was probably in in Cork. Um, I, I just, for me, it's everything about the place. Like, I love it, the city. I love going down to the coast. I love, you know, Paul Club, and it was just a really happy time in my life being at Coke. That's good. That's good. It's, uh, it's definitely somewhere that, that, that is definitely close to your heart and that you were saying there off, off air, you, you like to go back there regularly. Um, I, I came across, uh, you know, when I was doing a bit of research that you, you played against Juventus at some stage. Did you, was that in a challenge game or? No, we played him in the Champions League. This is in a Champions League qualifier in, in, in Turin. And I mean, it's something that, as I said before, like these little, these little experiences playing there against some of them players were like players that you looked at on the telly. I remember watching Del Piero play again. I used to love him. I, I had sideburns like him at one stage in my life because I used to want to be like him. And uh, when you see him take his shirt off and he's coming on the pitch, you're like, oh, it's Del Piero. You know, like playing against some of them players and Chiellini and, you know, the players they had at that time, you're like going, that was that was an experience. Just how quick they think and do things was like uh, it's next level. Was like there is levels and like people say about oh that kid's got technically he's one of the best players and you know but you go into the Premier League. Not only have you got to be technically gifted, 
you got to think so much quicker than everyone else. Uh, you got you got your actions and the way you do things. You got to be faster. So you got to think of your net. You, you're not thinking the next pass. You're thinking two, three passes ahead. So it's like some players are technically gifted, but they can't process that. And they can't do that, and that's why they might get into the Premier League for a year, but they soon start to fall out of it. So that that was definitely an experience to play against all, uh, Juventus and, and clubs that like of that caliber. Um, what I suppose with your experience overall, what was your favourite stadium to play in apart from Turner's Cross, or say out in Europe? Yeah, um, I would have to say Celtic Park. I mean, amazing stadium, just beautiful. Everything about it was great experience. And then after Cork, you you ended up in uh, letter, letter, Letterhead? Yeah, so, well, I ended up at uh, managing Blarney United in the months of the Senior League. Um, my intentions wasn't to play and I ended up being a player manager and we finished second in uh, my first year there and should have got promotion but had a couple of slippery games towards the end of the season and then I ended up a leverhead there in the, uh, in the, you know, the league below the conference in England. After not playing for a year and a half, I, my friend was the chairman and uh, he rang me and he was like, I'd just come back from America and he rang me and he was like, oh, do you want to come play? I was like, no. Like, I haven't played in a year and a half. I don't want to play. He's like, oh, we'll come and watch tomorrow. So I was like, oh, I'll come down and watch. So I got there and there's no one there. It's just me, Jimmy Bullard, who was the manager at the time, and then the chairman, he's like, oh, we've registered you. Like, you've on the bench today. I was like, I'm not playing. So I ended up sitting on the bench. 20 minutes into the game, left back got injured. I had to go on and play. Now, I haven't oh. kicked a ball. I haven't done any training in a year. I was absolutely dead for about three days afterwards. Couldn't move. I was like a rigor mortis had set in. It was like, oh, I was, I was. But then I ended up getting back playing and, they was in a relegation fight and we had some decent players and we ended up getting, you know, quite, ended up feeling just below mid-table, which was decent considering where we was when I went there. Brilliant, brilliant. And then you, you um, before I just, uh, you know, discuss, before we discuss about America and, and what you're up to now, um, who would you say was your favourite manager or what manager had biggest influence on your career? Um, I think Kenny Jackett had some influences on my career. I think Pat Dolan had some, you know, lifestyle influences on my career. Um, I think Damian Richardson gave me the confidence to believe I'm I was as good as I I could be. Um, but when I got to Leverhead, I met a person called Steve Salis. He does solution mindsets. People might have met him through or seen him on Netflix with the Sunderland team. And he does like, um, works with a lot of Premier League players. And when I went to Leverhead, he was there. And I'd been through kind of a difficult time in my life, went through a divorce, um, separation, and some financial difficulty. And I met him. And what he's helped me with in terms of the last six, seven years of my life, like putting certain structures in place. And I wish I'd have had him as a coach when I was 16. 
because what he's helped me with is been massive to me as a person and helped me develop as an adult and be better as a you know, better structures and look at things from a different point of view. So like, he's someone who's really shaped me into what I want to be as a coach. But yeah, I would say I've had three or four as a young kid that kind of gave me certain things, but no one really I would have turned and said, I, I learned everything from that person. I, I want to be like him. You, you, you took qualities and took, you know, I suppose you absorbed what you could from different people that cross paths with, paths with so different coaches, yeah. managers. Um, so it didn't look, the, you spent some time in, in the US. Uh, what was the purpose of that? As, as I said, I was going for kind of a difficult time in my life and I kind of wanted to get away as well. Um, got offered an opportunity to go out there and coach with Carolina Elite Soccer Academy, which are one of the biggest academies in terms of the US down south. Um, I kind of went in as like a, to work with the ECNL girls side, but I ended up being like the pre-ECNL development coach. I looked o- over all the younger age groups, but also coach within the ECNL. And my job really was to make sure the kids were prepared going into that elite level of playing. So I would really look at kids from the age of eight to 18. And I was kind of overseeing certain structures we had in place. And I was like the technical director. So technical aspects of what we wanted to do in training and how we wanted to do things, I would go over things like that. And do you want to give us an overview of what the pay-to-play scheme is, what they have in the, in the US? Um, yeah, so in America, obviously, it's a pay-to-play. So it's, you'd have two seasons within a year. You have a spring and a fall season. And depending on the level of team you're playing and the quality of, that you are as a player will depend on the cost you play. But everything in America is money. Everything. Right, because if you want to go to college, it costs thousands, and depending on the school, hundreds of thousands. Now, the pay-to-play scheme in America, right? If you're on a pay-to-play scheme with a club, all these kids who go to these clubs want to play at college, right? So, say for instance, I want to play at Clemson. If I want to play at Clemson, it's going to cost me sixty to a hundred grand a year over a four-year period. If I'm in a youth club, right, which say Carolina Elite, kids will pay between fifteen hundred to three thousand a year to play in that club, right? But they're only paying over a period of time at that club, probably around ten to fifteen grand. Right? But you've got to think about this from a different point of view. So everyone goes, I pay to pay, pay to pay. Yeah, but most of them kids will get a full ride in school. So instead of going to college and paying 60 to 100 grand a year, they're going to college and paying nothing. So that 15 grand that them parents have invested in them clubs to get them to that level, the parents are paying that money for the kids to go to a college and pay nothing. So then them kids are not coming out of college and having a 300 grand debt that they're paying for the next 20 years of their life they're coming out of college with a master's degree and had an amazing experience as a sportsperson and walking straight into a job. It's a good investment, so from from parents' point of view. Yeah. So when I hear people go, oh, the pay-to-play system, yeah, but in America, it's done that way. Like, it's the only way it could be done. 
because these clubs like Carolina Elite, when people see them, these coaches are all full time, right? So they're training the kids three days a week, right? So we're training three days a week. You play a game on a Saturday, Sunday. So it's five days a week they're playing football. Now, in England and in the Ireland, the kids are training two days a week and playing one game. So, and they still pay to play because they pay for subs to play on the team. They just don't pay the amount of money and the infrastructures that America have in place in terms of youth level football is miles ahead of what we have in the UK and in Ireland. No, you turn up at facilities in America, they've got immaculate pitches, right? Unbelievable facilities. They've got better facilities. Like the club I was at has got better facilities than most championship sides in England. And it's got better facilities than any Irish league side. We had 16 grass floodlit pitches. It were like carpets. Oh. So that money that is invested in these kids playing is all reciprocated in the facilities, the level of coaching they get, um, what they're potentially going to move on to being in. So if I had to invest £15,000 in my son to go to college and get a master's degree and potentially come out and be a doctor or uh, whatever he might be and never have to pay for that because you've just got a full ride, it's a no-brainer. It's well worth it. And it's just out of curiosity, so, you know, they, they go through this programme, but does all the kids get that opportunity or would it be only maybe, oh, would it be? maybe 50 or 60 of them? Or? This is for every kid. It all depends on the level of play that a kid wants to play at and it all depends on what they really want to do. So some kids might not want to go to a South Carolina or a Clemson and might or a Division One school and might end up picking a Division Two school because what they want to do when they finish school, they might not have that program. So not all the schools have the same program. So some kids pick their schools based on their program. Some kids pick their school based on it being by the beach. And some, school, some kids pick their school based on the level of football and where they want to play and how successful that particular school is. And then you, you, you've come back to, to London. Um, do you want to give us an overview of exactly what you're at, at there? Yeah, so I'm now, um, I came back and I've set up and got involved with Welling United Football Club, which are a national league team and, you know, been around for a, a number of years and quite, you know, within the South London area, quite a, a well-known club. Um, I now come in and I've set up the structures for the, the the women's side of the club. So we have a women's senior team starting this season, which I'm the manager of, and I'm also the manager of the academy, with the girls' academy. We had, we've started from day one. We had, last year when I come in, they had one team, which was like a mix of age groups between 11s, 12s and 13s. It was like 12 players. We we'll now have um, 72 players across the academy. We have a pre-academy from ages three to seven. We have an under nines. We have an under tens. We have under 11s. We have under 12s and under 13s. We have an under 16s program starting up. And so we're looking at, at potentially our night and pre-academy will feed into our Next year will be our under eights and under tens, under nines. So we'll have uh, ages from un- we'll have teams from under uh, three, well under four, sorry, all the way up to under sixteens. Um, and we have a 
scholarship program from 16 to 18 plus that will start a year in September, which will be around 50 players and they'll train every day and do schoolwork. So they'll do like an A-level qualification. So it's like the force course that the FAI do, but we do that as a club and they'll feed then into our senior women's first team. So within the next two years, we'll have a team in every age group, but we have seven at the moment and we've just got to bridge the gap between them teams and we are, you know, potentially in the next two years go for academy status on the girls' side because we have the level of players and we have the numbers. On on that point, uh, two things. The academy status, what's the importance of that? Um, from a financial point of view, from a club, um, we're open, better opportunities for funding. Um, a higher level of player will come to you based on being having academy status. You can play against other academies within an academy league. Um, so instead of playing like local grassroots teams, which we'll have to do next year, we'll potentially be able to play um, other national league sides, development teams. And so we could go and play like an Arsenal and a Cholton and Crystal Palace and a Mirwall and we can play other teams like that. So it opens up that avenue for us as a club. And also, if we have professional clubs come in looking for our players, we can charge a fee. So that fee can then fit back into the academy and then it helps in terms of us getting our own facilities and more financial help in terms of having better quality coaches, more support for our coaches in terms of helping them play for qualifications, having more CPD days and helping that money go back into the youth system so parents pay less money every month in terms of fees because we can provide more for them on a financial point. So it, it it is very important. So on that would be the goal to get that that status. Yeah, two three years. At the moment, so at the moment we have probably a handful of girls are at professional clubs, so-called professional academies, and they would be at like an Arsenal's and Cholton's and the Chelsea's, and but they still play for us as a grassroots team. So potentially, because we're not an academy, when they come to thirteen and fourteen they'll have to make a choice either to stay with us or they go and play for them. Now, we could have had that kid since five years of age. We will get nothing off that academy for them. So we have to put in all the time and effort and not just us, not, and not even the time and effort, we've put in um, a plan to get them to where they are in terms of for their technical ability and as a player, they've got to put in the time and effort. But what we've the cost that has come to us as a club and what we've paid out for, we don't see anything for that. So it's like now with Cork Cities and stuff like that, when they take these kids from these youth clubs or the, the Munster Senior League Club or uh, a DDSL club, they now have to pay a fee to these clubs. Or if these kids go to England, then they'll get a kickback from UEFA. Whereas like, ultimately that helps the, you in a good financial position, but also helps with putting other structures in place and developing more and improving more. And, you know, finance obviously helps. It makes the world go round. But being able to have the finance coming in that can better you as a club and provide more for the kids is something that we really need. And would you have um, a big pick with numbers? Like, you know, would you attract players from all around South London or would it be... Yeah, so we're kind of in a 
area really we've we've we'll attract a lot of kids from like south london and kent south east london and kent and as a club the club has a good name it's never had a name for girls and to have 72 73 girls in the first year is quite quite good but i think it's down to the level of coaching that we have so a lot of our coaches are either level two or UA for B qualified coaches have played at a decent standard and are technically proficient to be able to demonstrate and show kids what to do. So we don't have any parent coaches. All our coaches are paid coaches. So we pay all our coaches and we don't have any parents coaching teams. Is it, uh, definitely, it seems to be a big investment so, and it, it's very professionally run. Yeah, well, we want to be as close to as an academy as possible. I mean, on the boys' side, we still have parent coaches. But my aim and my the aspirations for the girls' side was that I didn't want to go down that road, that I wanted to kind of use some of the things that were in place in America and bring them into place in Wellings. I think there's a lot that we can all learn from them. Apart from calling it, we're not going to call it soccer, but there's a lot of things we can learn from them. But in terms of how the structures they have in place at youth level, and the leagues, like the ECNL league that is structuring what is in place in America is probably the best run youth league I've ever seen. Like, unbelievable. Well, it's, um, so definitely, I suppose you kind of answered that point that, you know, your time in America was definitely beneficial, has opened your eyes and has opened your mind to, to different things. Yeah, I mean, until I went to America, I'd never used the computer. Unless I was watching a DVD. Like, but I, I went there and I had to do Excel. And it might sound stupid to some people, but I never had to use Excel. When would I ever use that? Yeah. I never used to have to use a Word document. I never used to have to do put, convert something from a, a Word to a PDF. And I used to be like, what the hell am I doing here? And like, I had to go and learn all these things. And being there helped me be a better coach and you know learn how to actually manage things and you know the structures they have in place there and the expectations on you as a coach you know you've got to adhere, you've got to live up to certain standards and if you don't you'll get found out very quickly over there on that, on that point then you will uh we'll, we'll wrap it up there look thanks very much for coming on an interview podcast no problem i enjoyed it I hope you all enjoyed the interview with Danny. He was very, very honest, open, and look, you could definitely feel and you could definitely understand that he's very, very grateful um, for the career he had. With over 200 appearances to his name for Cork City, having been instrumental in securing League of Ireland glory for them in 2005, to play in the Champions League and to help them to rise from the ashes again in 2011 and gain promotion back to the Premier Division. After some troubling years, safe to say he'll always have a home in the heart of the Cork City supporters. Signing for Cork in 2004 from English non-league side Margate was definitely a period of final move for the Londoner. Murphy's now making strides with South London-based Welling United women's side. From everyone here at an Inside View podcast, we'd like to wish Danny the very best look going forward. That is all from us here on this week's episode. 
please do get in contact with the show if you have any stories from being part of a team, whether it's a sports team or a corporate team, please do let us know. Don't worry, everything will be kept confidential. Don't forget to rate, review, and tell your friends, family, and whoever may know about an Inside View podcast. Go follow us on our social media channels to be kept up based exactly what we do here at an Inside View podcast and on the ball team building and also to be you know kept in the loop with any competitions that we'll be running with our new podcast sponsors GRG Sports. You'll find us on Instagram at underscore on the ball team building. Over on Facebook it's on the ball team building and on Twitter you'll find us at we are on the ball two. That is the digit two. Have a lovely week and be sure to tune in next week when we have another exciting guest. Till then, please do stay safe and remember, cred in it, fame. Talk to you all soon.